All right, we're in Matthew chapter 6, part 2 of our series, Teach Us, Teach Us to Pray. This one is called Our Father, Our Father. Now, last week I introduced it as Lord, Teach Us to Pray, and I said most of us never had really good teachers when it comes to prayer. And those that are saying that they know a thing or two about prayer oftentimes can lead people astray. Because there's the Muslim view of prayer, there's the Jewish view of prayer, and then within Christianity, there's all kinds of streams of prayer that are like cross currents that make it really tough to navigate and figure out, how do I do this? If you talk to somebody, almost no one, I've never met them, but my guess is almost no one thinks I'm doing this prayer thing really well. What we need is somebody to teach us to pray. And when Jesus is asked, Lord, teach us to pray, he gives us a simple prayer. He gives us the Lord's prayer. And I'm convinced that the Lord's prayer is basically all we need. <laughs> if you're going beyond a, a prayer that Jesus gave us and you think you can improve upon this, as if you can graduate from the Lord's prayer, I think you're doing it wrong. And so what we're doing is going back to the place where we've started. And the first thing that Jesus teaches is about this, this line, our Father in heaven. You see, none of the masters of the teachers of prayer Augustine or Luther or Calvin or anybody else, develop their instruction primarily based on their own experiences of prayer. In every case, what they're doing is their belief and their practice about prayer, it grows out of their understanding of the ultimate master class in prayer, this one, the Lord's Prayer. And so we're just taking a few weeks to walk through the Lord's Prayer. Today, um, we're just going to look at this, this one line, Our Father in Heaven. I was talking to Aaron before, and he's like, how do you preach a whole sermon on four words? That seems impossible. Guys, this is everything. I was reading N.T. Wright. He says, this line, our Father in heaven, he says, this is the beginning, our Father. And I was, I was, I was thinking, he says, but it's not just the beginning. It's after you've gone through the whole thing, you come back to the end, you realize I'm just at the place where I started. Let me illustrate. Our our kids are little. We've got 10, 7, and 5. Five years old, if you don't have kids, may sound big, but she's little. She's, she's still just a little girl. And at uh, dinner time or at bedtime, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And so she's learning to pray, Our Father in Heaven. And the language is giving categories for how to give adoration and give praise to God. It's, it's about thinking of God's kingdom. It's about petition and intercession and divine deliverance. There's so many things that she'll come to learn through the Lord's Prayer. But when she's 72 years old and when she's facing cancer and her family is surrounding her, it will be our Father that holds her close. It will be our Father, this line that has all the fullness that she needs in prayer. When she's worried about who to marry or unable to have kids, when she's trying to navigate her life and trying to figure out her, her, her calling and vocation, what the Lord wants her to do, when she's had a spat with a friend, it will be our Father who sees her through. You see, this is everything. And so I've only got a few minutes <laughs> to do these four words. So what we're going to do with these four words is look at our Father, and then look at our Father in heaven, and then we'll go back to our Father and look at it from a different angle. So there's really three movements to the sermon, even though it's only four words. Our Father in heaven is everything, and it's everything in this prayer. The, the first word in Greek of this prayer is Father. 
this is how the prayer is structured. So our Father in heaven, and then he goes to the Father and he asks for three things. He says, I want your name to be hallowed, I want your kingdom to come, and I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The second half of the prayer is about us, the hour in the equation. And he says three requests. I want you to give us the daily bread. I want you to forgive us as we've forgiven. And I want you to deliver us from evil and from temptation. You see, it's love God and love your neighbor. But all of it is structured under our Father in heaven, our Father. It's the whole prayer. If you can understand Father, you get the first half. And if you can understand us, you get the second half. This is theology. This is identity. It's, it's everything. Everything hinges on our Father in heaven. So let's look at first our Father. What do we mean when we say Father? Well, there's a, a preacher in town at Bellevue for a long time named Adrian Rogers. He wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer called When We Say Father. But I just want to ask this question of when we say Father, what comes to your mind? What comes to our mind? Now, if you've got a sibling, imagine you're sitting with your sibling and somebody says something about our father. Who comes to mind? What do you picture? If you're sitting at a family reunion, my, um, my dad's family reunion is coming up in a couple of weekends in Texas. And you're going to get generations of Bradfords and Hopkins and all these, all these people gathered. And if they were sitting there saying, well, our father. Do you see how... Our Father in heaven is very much shaped first by our experience of our fathers here on earth, for better or worse. When we think of our Father, the first place we normally go is not in heaven, it's our, our dads. And yet these two are inextricably connected. A.W. Tozer, he says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most portentous fact of any person is not what he is at a given time, what he may say or what he may do, but what he is deep in his heart, what he conceives God to be like. What you think about God, your Father, is the most important thing about you, he says. Let's listen to John Mark Comer. and He's talking about the, a life of discipleship, a life of prayer, and he says it all begins with the healing of our false images of God. This makes sense. If the whole story of Scripture begins with the false images of God and of self, the only way to repair that communion is to heal the false images of God. But where do these come from? Our false images of God, I think, are very much shaped by our experiences with people and especially our fathers. Uh, Jen Barnett, she's the director of Freedom Prayer. She wrote a book with uh, Andy Reese, and she says, as very young children, we create core beliefs about ourselves, about others, and about our environment and God. Core lies form two. These lies are held at the deepest emotional and subconscious level in the heart. They then propel reactions and actions and decisions. Core lives often center around two key areas, victimization and rejection. I don't belong or I'm not enough or I, I can't be there. We ask, is the world safe? Am I acceptable? And almost everybody has dealt with some form of these two. And it starts young. It starts when we're children. Do you see what she's saying? That when we think of our father, it's shaped by our experiences, especially our early childhood experiences of, of our dads. And certainly our moms too, but this language of father 
means that for many it's shaped by our, particularly our experience of our, of our dad. I heard one pastor, he described what's happening today as a cultural crisis of fatherhood. And he, he called it an Esau generation. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau, two brothers, they were both striving for a blessing from their father as if their father didn't have enough to go around. And Esau is tricked out of the blessing. And so because his father didn't bless him in the way he wanted, he just becomes this wanderer, this nomad. It brings dissension into the family. His life is warped because he wanted to be blessed by his father, and he wasn't. In Esau generation, this line, what he means is that so many people today have this striving and this longing to be blessed by your dad, to be loved and cared for. And some of you were in profound, beautiful ways that imitate our Father in heaven, but most of us, we weren't blessed in the ways that our hearts long to be blessed, either by what they did or by what they didn't do, by what they led you into or what they didn't protect you from. I've sat in my own prayer times, and I've sat in many other freedom prayer times where we have to go visit what happened because of a dad. I was reading a book by John Tyson called The Infin Intentional Father. He's interacting with Richard Rohr. He says this, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. If we don't transform it, we'll transmit it. That's from Richard Rohr. In other words, he says, John Tyson, if we don't deal with our own baggage and our own hurt, if we don't walk into our wounds and discover what's really happening there, we'll end up passing that pain on to someone else. If we don't transform the pain we experience as sons and daughters, we will pass that pain on to our own children. So many of us feel inadequate because of the fallout of what happened between us and our own fathers, or they're absent, which means we have to spend some dedicated time thinking through the role our fathers had in our lives. Is it tough for you to think about your father? Maybe you're wishing he tried harder. Maybe you hear what other dads do for their kids at a young age and it hurts because your father never did those kinds of things for you. Maybe Father's Day is the day you hate the most because there's a giant hole in your life that a father should have filled for you. It's important to realize that all of us have complicated relationships with our fathers, whether because of what they did or what they didn't do. Do you see that all of us experience some measure where our dads don't measure up to the fatherhood of God, and then we're left to make sense of it in our world, in our own hearts, in our lives. And then you get in a relationship and you start realizing that you're doing things in ways that imitate him. You didn't even like that he was doing them. You feel trapped in them. I've listened to young people young men and women who are trapped in pornography, and, and they keep thinking, where was my mom and dad? Where were they when I was led like an innocent lamb into this? They should have protected me from some things. So what's the, what's the path forward here? It creates this disorientation not only with our fathers, but these core lies bleed over when we think of the fatherhood of God. It creates this disorientation with with God. So it's not only that we have a cultural crisis of fatherhood, it's that we have a cultural crisis of the fatherhood of God. And so many of us are very skeptical if God is actually good and can he be trusted? Is he really going to come through? Is he really going to protect me? Does he have my best interests at heart? And so I think what we need is something like the Lord's Prayer that 
It shows us how to be fathered by God. And it starts our Father in heaven. And T. Wright says, the end of all our striving will be to arrive where we started and to know it for the first time. I want to offer you a tool to reflect on this. You've seen this tool before if you've been through Welcome Home. If you're about to start Welcome Home, it's a little work before you start your workbook. You'll, you'll see this. This is what we call the Father-King Matrix. Father-King Matrix. We're trying to pit two different perspectives of God that seem like they're at odds, like they're in juxtaposition to one another. One is Father, that He wants to have a relationship with us, and the other is King, that He has some measure of responsibility for us. Now, the opposite of these things is where you don't have a relationship or where you don't have responsibility. In the top left corner, we see something like I was trying to think of a somewhat nice word to put here. Uh, really, the most fitting word isn't spoiled. It's a brat. It's somebody who thinks you have a relationship with your dad, but you have absolutely no responsibility there. I was looking in the thesaurus, and it said um, one of the synonyms was a whippersnapper. And I was like, I don't think that's going to communicate what I want. So this person, they experience God in some measure of relationship, but then they don't actually care what he says about anything. Now, down here, somebody who does not experience God as father, and they have no sense of obligation to him either. I'm describing this as an orphan. In Paul's writings, the Apostle Paul, like Romans chapter 8, he refers to the spirit of adoption. He says the spirit of adoption is where the spirit of God lives in us. He says when you have the spirit of adoption, that's when you can cry out, Abba, Father. It's like what you know to be true theologically becomes true personally. Abba, I feel it. I know it. The Spirit is helping me because I have a spirit of adoption. But many writers and, and preachers talk about an orphan spirit. It's where instead of saying, Abba, Father, I know you love me and I know I'm your child, it's like, does he love me? Am I really his child? Instead of a spirit of adoption, it's an orphan spirit. And then down here, this is more like an employee. Now, an employee works and labors and then feels very entitled to the benefits and to the compensation. I've earned it, after all. And so if this one is like a self-obsession, spoiled, this one is like a self-righteousness, an employee. And all of these map on really well to the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 where the younger brother who goes to his father and he says, Dad, I want you to give me everything I have. I, just give me everything and I'm going to avoid all my responsibility. He's spoiled. Meanwhile, do you remember the older brother who's back in the field? He says, all these years I've been slaving away and you've never even given me. He's so upset because he feels entitled for all his work. So obviously there's one more category here and that's where we find the child. Uh, the one who is beloved and knows it, and the one who loves and knows it. So let me ask you this. Where are you in the matrix? Could you just take 30 seconds and kind of map out where you are today, and then maybe where you were 10 or 20 years ago, and start asking this question, how do you relate to God? So which one most resonates with where you're at today, or your default picture of God your Father? I'm going to give you just a, a minute of silence.
the spoiled child, the orphan, the employee. Instead of praying the Lord's Prayer, they pray a very different prayer. It's not your kingdom, your will. It's my name, my kingdom, my will. Instead of daily bread and the power to forgive others, it's, will you give me more than I ever needed? Will you give me forgiveness even when I don't forgive others? Will you overlook my temptation because I tend to enjoy that time with the evil one? It's a very different prayer. But the child prays the Lord's Prayer and he looks up to heaven and he says, Our Father. If we're thinking about our Father in heaven, we have to start at some point thinking about our identity as a child of God. But then we have to move at some point also to thinking about God. Our Father in heaven. This is the second movement. Who is the Father in heaven? These words Father and heaven are really central key words in the Gospel of Matthew. Father is used 44 times in the Gospel. Heaven is used about 76 times in the Gospel of Matthew, half of which are about the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean that God is Father in heaven? It's a good question because before Jesus, there is no record of anyone ever referring to God the Lord, the Most High, as the Father in heaven. He's the first one to say He is our heavenly Father. Now, they knew that God was Father in some sense, but they didn't know that He was the Father in heaven. Jesus is the one who introduces us and reveals who God is in this way, this new name of God. What does He mean when He says it? In the Sermon on the Mount, He Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he actually uses this language of Father and Father in heaven over and over and over again. Almost half of the occurrences of Father occur in these three chapters. And if you just look in the Sermon on the Mount alone, you'll see some of these things. You'll see that God, our Father, is light and he is glory. He loves even his enemies, that he is perfect and righteous, that he sees even when it seems invisible and unseen, that he rewards, that he knows, that he forgives, that he feeds, and that he gives good gifts. That's just Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This picture of God is extraordinary because on the one hand, it shows that his powerful nature, it's saying that God is the all-seeing one, the perfect one, the all-right, the all-good one, like any of the kind of classical definitions of who God is, that he is all-seeing and all-knowing, they're there in the sermon. If you think that you can go into your closet and hide from your God, he says, just know that he sees what's done in secret. He's all-seeing. If you think that you have to plead to God in your prayers because he doesn't know what you need until you beg him and plead, he says, you don't have to convince God. He's all-knowing. He's powerful in his nature. But even just in this sermon, it also shows that he's personal in his nurture. He'll say, look at the pagans. They run after things that your heavenly father wants to give to you. You don't have to run after this God. He runs after you. He says, think of the birds and the lilies. They neither toil nor spin, yet your heavenly father feeds them and takes care of them and gives them what they need. There's this attentive care of a father. He's He's heavenly, he's transcendent, powerful, and he is fatherly. He is close, he is loving, 
He is attentive. This phrase, commentators say, Father in heaven is a way of holding both of these together. There is the juxtaposition of his transcendence and his eminence, to use the theological categories, of his nearness and his otherness. It's all there in Father in heaven. And it's not like Jesus invented this concept of God. Jesus is revealing this picture of God that was already there long before. He is he's there seeing you. He's there knowing you. He's there to give good gifts to you. He's there to feed you and water you, to love you. Now, there's this word Abba that often goes along with Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. Uh, N.T. Wright, he's... He says, some scholars used to say that the word Abba was like the little child's word daddy. And you may have grown up in a church where somebody preached that sermon and somebody started praying a prayer that started daddy or daddy God. And some of you may have felt a little uncomfortable when that started happening. He says, Abba is actually, it's not a little child's word for God. It is that. And it's also a term of respect and reverence. And so daddy doesn't quite capture what this is. And so he says, actually, scholars are pushing back on that idea. Ancient notions of fatherhood, Pennington says, could create juxtapositions lost somewhat in contemporary Western notions. Intimacy and awe, familiar comfort and reverent respect. So it means respect, dependence, and obedience. It means that he's the father and the king. Jesus combines both of these together in his picture, but he gets this picture from the Old Testament scriptures itself. Just think of the, the fatherhood of God really going back. Do you know the first time that God shows up as father in the story of God in, in scripture? It's whenever he shows up to the people of Israel when they're in Exodus chapter 4. And he has this announcement for King Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the one who has enslaved Israel. He's, been put, he's made them work harder with less. And Moses shows up and he says, this is what I want you to tell him. Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go so he can worship me. That's what a father does. The first time God shows up as father in the story is this scene where, he, you see, it, it's intimacy but it's more than intimacy, it's revolution. He is there to break you free. He is there with power and might to show that he is God of gods and Lord of lords, and he is there to destroy armies and strongholds and to rescue you so that you can go be with him. Intimacy and respect. Yet this, this picture of Israel as my firstborn son at the beginning of the Exodus story seems so at odds with this picture at the end of the Exodus story. In Exodus 19, they come up to Mount Sinai. Now they're out of Egypt, and they come up, except they can't come up. It says the people cannot come up. He says, set apart this place as holy. And so Moses can experience God on the mountain, but everybody else has to stay back. There's this distance that's created where they don't get to experience him as father. It's because of their sin that they have been left out. So this story of the separation of heaven and earth, whenever it says our father in heaven, I, I love that song that we just learned today, the communion song. Um, it says that he's closer than our skin. 
He's in the air we're breathing in. That's, that's actually the word heaven. Heaven is it's the air around us. It's the spiritual realm. It's not some far off place like Oz. It's, it's, it's God's kingdom here. Where God is king, that is what it looks like in, to be heaven. All right, I, I've got to move here because what I want to do is make room for Reed Stafford. Reed, are you around? Okay. I want to give him a few minutes to do a, a practice, um, but um, let, me, let me do one more movement here. So we saw our Father, and we saw our Father in heaven, but I want to go back to this word our and just not miss this. When we think of our, we think of the community. It's plural, after all, not singular. The, the Christian faith is never like an individual called into God to be alone with God. It is an individual called into a family to be a part of a body where we are interconnected parts. This is Jesus' vision. This is the vision of the apostles in their writings. We are a community of prayer. We know that. But what I want to draw attention to is the one who said this. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who says, our Father. This is just incredible to me. It's incredible because the true Son of the Father looks at me and you. He looks at Peter and James and John. And he says, you know, he's at the family reunion. He's, he's at the dinner table talking. He says, you know, our Father. Our Father. Jesus, how can that be? He's your father. You are the son eternally who is with him and in the loving communion of, of the Godhead forever. And here you are looking at my friends saying, our father? Jesus is saying, my father can be your father. My father is your father. You see, every prayer we offer in the name of Jesus is a prayer where Jesus is saying, yes, our father, my brother or my sister. This is our God. We are here together. Every prayer you pray is a prayer with Jesus. No one ever prayed to our father in the Old Testament. But there was this prophecy in Psalms where they say, one day when the true son of David comes, he is going to pray this prayer. Psalm 89, 26. You are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. I will appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And the most exalted king of the earth doesn't just get exalted by himself. He says, I want you to come along with me. This is our father, not just my father. Every prayer he prays is to the father, save one, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because he was forsaken, we get to be joined with the father. I and the father are one, Jesus says. Jesus is the way to the father, and he grants us through his firstborn status the gift of adoption into his family. One of my friends was a campus minister in Nashville, and he met this remarkable family. They showed up, and they told him this story. There was two brothers showing up to college together. One brother was a child by birth. His mom and dad had this boy. They raised him, and then he became really good friends with another boy. The boy had bounced around many foster homes and orphanages, and he had a very difficult life. But he came such good friends with the oldest son that the family came to him and said, we want to adopt you into our family. And they did. And they said, actually, the hardest thing about this adoption is having him believe that he's actually part of our family. 
but it's because of his relationship with the, with the firstborn son that he gets to be adopted into the father's household. It's a lot like that, where Jesus is saying, because of my relationship, it's our relationship. The son is for us. He's our mediator. He's the one who, who pours out the spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. God sent his son, Galatians 4 says, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. You are a child. And since you're a child, God has also made you an heir. He says, you've been adopted. And so in the adoption, it comes out with this, this audacity. This audacity is the word that Jesus teaches us to pray. Pray in audacity. There's a, a woman named Begum Bilkis Sheikh, and she wrote a book called I Dare to Call Him Father. She's a Muslim woman living in Pakistan, and her parents died, and soon thereafter, her husband leaves her. She goes on this faith journey, and she wants to know God more because she's feeling so lonely. She's a, a woman of renown. She has all sorts of servants, but she feels incredibly lonely. She asks one of her servants to bring her a Bible because as she's reading the Quran, she's come across this prophet named Jesus, and she wants to know more about him. And so she reads this Bible, and she has this peace when she reads the Bible, and she continues to seek God in the Quran and in the scriptures. But then she starts having these visions, these visions, one of John the Baptist, one of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, one where she's given this perfume that smells like a garden of roses, and she sets the perfume down on her nightstand, and then she wakes up from the dream, and she looks over right where the perfume was, and it's, it's her Bible. And she heard this message in the dream, and she said, this perfume is going to go throughout all the earth. And she had this providential encounter one time in a hospital where one of the doctors, he said, here's what you need to do. Just talk to God. Talk to him as a friend. Talk to him as your father. And she said the people with her laughed at that because you can't talk to God as father. God as father? Come on. And he says, but the words kept returning to her. Talk to him as if he were your father. And so alone in my room, I got on my knees and I tried to call him father. It was a useless effort, and I straightened in dismay. It was ridiculous. Wouldn't it be sinful to try to bring the great one down to our level? And so I fell asleep that night more confused than ever. But then later, a few weeks, she prays, Oh, Father, my Father. She said, I spoke his name aloud. And then as if something broke through for me, I found myself trusting that he was indeed hearing me. Just as my earthly father had always done. Father, oh, my Father. I cried with confidence growing. My voice seemed unusually loud in the large bedroom as I knelt on the rug beside my bed. But suddenly, that room wasn't empty anymore. He was there. I could sense his presence. I could feel his hand laid gently on my head. It was as if I could see his eyes filled with love and compassion. He was so close that I found myself laying my head on his knees like a little girl sitting at her father's feet. For a long time, I knelt there sobbing quietly, floating in his love. And I found myself take, talking with him, apologizing for not having known him before. And again came his loving compassion like a warm blanket settling around me. There's a scene in the Gospel of Mark where... You, you remember, Jesus is, he's there and all these families, these parents, 
fathers. They want Jesus to bless their kids. And the disciples in Mark 10, 13, they say, he didn't have time for this. But then Jesus said this. It says that of Jesus, he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. So the good news for everyone who desired to be blessed by your father is that Jesus receives children. He puts his hand on you and he offers you the blessing of being a child of God. Through him, you get the father. What a beautiful thing. Reed, can you come up and help me uh, introduce a practice. We're going to introduce a practice actually on the back of your bulletin. Everybody will need a bulletin for this exercise. This isn't like some ploy to get you to read it. It's really there on the back. You need this. And we're going to introduce kind of two, two wings about how to kind of practice this prayer. Last week we did simple prayer, but we want to introduce a prayer of contemplation and then next month, a prayer of contending, prayer of contemplation. Reed, can you talk to us about canoes and then yeah. uh, lead us in this uh, exercise? Yeah, so um, I think a helpful way to think about prayer in communion, uh, contemplation, or and contending is to think about being on a boat in a river. Um, communion is almost this floating, floating down. We're, we're in the presence of God. We're, we're with him. Uh, but contending feels more like you're in the canoe with oars and you're moving forward. And what we want to do just for a few minutes this morning is to float, to, to be in the presence of God. And one of the best ways and gifts that God gives us to do that is scripture. Um, so we want to not only teach on prayer, but help you pray. So then hopefully throughout your week, you can do this each day with a recommended uh, scripture in the bulletin. Um, so we're going to take advantage of the kids being downstairs, and there's some silence that we can lean into. Uh, but what we're going to simply do is what's called a gospel contemplation, where we sit and we imagine a story from Scripture, um, but to really try to place ourselves in it. So as I begin, um, I'm going to kind of, there's going to be some times of silence, and uh, we encourage you just to sit and be still to get comfortable. And then I might read something, I might kind of prompt you with a question um, but I encourage you for the next about 10 minutes or so just to be still and sit. So please pray with me as we, as we do this together. Holy Father, we give thanks that you draw us into intimate relationship with you. Father, as we uh, seek your presence and an experience with you, we pray for your spirit to stir within us uh, our hearts towards you, that your spirit guides us to uh, your loving arms and presence as we uh, meet you in scripture and meet you in your story. We're going to give just a few moments of silence to still ourselves before we enter into scripture. And as you listen to the story, 
the teaching of Jesus, we encourage you to be attentive to details. What stands out? What feels significant as you hear these words? There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his child, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your child. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For, his, for this child of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. As you hear the story, what does the scene look like? Where are you standing in the story? Are you the child? Are you watching from up high? Spend a few moments giving as much detail to the scene as you can. The child got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his child, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your child. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this child of mine was dead and is alive again. Was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. As you celebrate and rest in the arms of the loving Father, ask the Lord, what do you need me to hear today? Ask him, what do you want to show me today? And listen. Thank the Lord for speaking to you. Spend a few moments in silence just resting in the love of God.
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you all. Uh, I encourage you to keep in mind the bulletin on the back with the guide and practice it this week. Go get your kids.